Welcome. You're listening to Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and this is America's Web Radio. Today in studio with me are David Donaldson and Michael Daly from the Atlanta Healing Center. Welcome. Thank you. Hi, thank you. Glad you guys are here today because I think this is a important show as we look at the opiate crisis. And I know we've looked at this before and we've talked about it, but we really need to back up a bit and look at how did this happen. So, David, I know just as uh, we were driving over here to the studio, there was a, a news brief that you were aware of about an update on what's happening down in middle Georgia. But yeah, and, and that was part of what got us talking about this show in yes. particular was just um, last Tuesday there was the, the news report that there had been four overdose deaths and several hospitalizations from opioid, um, from counterfeit Percocet pills that had been mixed with um, a new type of fentanyl. Um, and and in the news this morning, the, the update was that yet another person had died from that that. Um, Epidemic that's going on here in the United States and in particular in Mecca and and Macon right now, um, and so looking back at at just how we got to this place, I think is is kind of crucial in in beginning to figure out some efforts to try and stop all this. And in regards to the story that you just talked about, these are um, drugs that are being sold as a yellow tablet, a scored tablet, which means it has a line through it. It's a light yellow in color, and it's being sold as Percocet. I have a colleague whose husband is in law enforcement, and she said that the delivery has, or the, the delivery, that the um, the caution has gone out to all law enforcement personnel to be extremely, extremely careful if they come across this because, as you may know, this is not Percocet. This is actually fentanyl, which is a much more powerful opioid and that, unlike other opioids, unlike heroin or Oxycontin or oxycodone, which is what Percocet is, fentanyl can be absorbed through your skin. Many people may be familiar with the fentanyl patch that is sometimes used for very severe pain or end-of-life pain, someone suffering with cancer. So the fentanyl can be absorbed through your skin and that there have been toxic reactions from law enforcement and other folks that have come across either the fentanyl powder or, in this case, the fentanyl tablets and have absorbed it and have had an overdose. Well, just recently, I think last week, I was I was seeing an article where a police officer had been involved in a drug bust. I think it was in Ohio. And three hours later, he noticed something on his uniform and he brushed it off with his bare hand and within i don't know how long he he was somebody found him um in mm-hmm. an overdose situation they rushed him to the hospital and he he has made it but he did overdose and it was just by luck that somebody came across him and just by brushing this the powder off of his yeah um, just so trying. not even any prolonged contact with it so it's it's incredibly dangerous very dangerous, very deadly, and unfortunately, 
we, no fentanyl is here with us. This is the first major report that we've had of it being issued, if you will, um, in the form of a pill. Now, the, the Chinese fentanyl that was coming in from China through Vancouver, Seattle, and some of the West Coast has been in the pill form, and they've been labeled as OxyContin. But um, And there's been other times, and you know, from our perspective, where we've seen pill mills come out, and they've, they, they've got their pill presses, and they're making different kinds of whatever pill is popular right. at the time. But I think this is the first time where the substance has bad, been such, um, um, such a deadly thing so quickly. And the difficulty is that unlike the usual drug tests that you might do at a hospital or even um, at the police station, at, at other law enforcement agencies, fentanyl has to be a specialty ordered drug test. So it's going to take longer to be identified. And that's been one of our frustrations because we'll have people come in in withdrawal from heroin. That's what they've been using. That's, well, that's what they think they've been using. And one of the things that we find is that when we do a drug test and send it off for confirmation, it takes several days. And we will see, yes, sometimes it's heroin, but often it's heroin and fentanyl. And the challenge for us is in knowing that and in trying to establish um, a reasonable dose of buprenorphine naloxone products so that we get them out of withdrawal. It's a much more difficult uh, process to go through, and it's not nearly as simple and as fast to get someone stabilized as if they're, and I'm using air quotes here, people, but in, if they're just using heroin. Yesterday I just had a call to the Atlanta Healing Center from a, a person that works in the hospital, and she wanted to know what was happening because they had a patient that was in the hospital for seven days. So he'd been watched for seven days, and he was still going through severe withdrawal. Mm-hmm. And she said, I don't, know, I don't know exactly what this is, but I think that Dr. Blank would know. And so we discussed that. But um, I, I believe that, like you said, it was, it, it was probably heroin with, with fentanyl. Mm-hmm. Potentially methadone, too, another long, more arduous uh, detox, but we often don't know, and and it's not something that we have an instant read for, an instant drug test or drug screen. So often law enforcement, often, just as you said, Michael, hospital personnel don't know what they're dealing with. What we do know, though, is to reverse a fentanyl overdose takes multiple doses of the naloxone. We had a show on this a few weeks ago about the change in the Georgia law allowing Georgia pharmacies to provide for anyone who asks naloxone rescue kits to help reverse an opioid overdose. If it is fentanyl, they're going to need to have multiple doses and they're going to probably need to give those relatively quickly because this is a much more potent, powerful opioid. And unfortunately, there are people who die even with assistance, Mm -hmm. which is tragic. 
You know, it strikes me how many times we've done similar shows over the past, um, beginning in 2011, um, when at the Atlanta Healing Center with doing the drug test, 2012, we were already noticing fentanyl in our drug screens, um, and and we've sort of been doing this this um, cry out there that this is going on, and it just keeps growing. You know, the, in the same article in the newspaper, it talked about how overdose deaths is now the leading cause of death for people under 50 in America and in Georgia, um, over a thousand deaths a year in that same time frame. So um, th- there's some waking up that we've got to do. I think that's getting kind of dismissed because it's the addict population. It's getting dismissed because it's kind of it's always been the fringe, but it's not the fringe anymore. It's, yeah. it's no, it's mainstream. Uh, it's mainstream, and it's it's children of of affluent and you know very good parents across the board. Across the board, it's not. It, it hits all socioeconomic levels, all education levels, all cultures. There, there's no one spared from this, unfortunately, and we have been raising the war cry, and unfortunately there are still way, way, way too many people dying. So it is a, a word of caution for everyone to be on the lookout for these tablets, to be very careful if they come across someone who is acting strangely or seems difficult to wake up. This is a 911 call, and be very, very careful, and don't handle it yourself. Call for um, 911 personnel to come and help you, and you're going to need to call 911. <laughs> you're absolutely going to need to call 911. Do not wait. Do not hesitate. Do it. B- go ahead and be embarrassed that that person was just really, really asleep. Uh, much better to do that than to have somebody overdose and die. Right, and what's what's a bit scary to me is that many of the people that are still on a pill opiate form and using it maybe not as directed mm-hmm. but buying it off the street are usually folks that that very early had been to a doctor with a physical illness you know they've gotten a sports injury or or something they've been to the dentist yes and they cannot get the opiate from a doctor anymore so they have to go out and find means to do it. Well, now with these new counterfeits, that's hitting a very young or very naive. It's hitting everybody. Husbands, wives. Right. Population. So. So when we back up and we say, how in the world did we get to this place? How did this happen? How did this move into the mainstream? How are we having more overdose deaths than traffic accidents? How is th- how has this happened? We have to really turn the clock back to the early 80s when we began to see this change in the attitudes around pain management, the attitudes around physicians writing for pain medication, and the attitudes in terms of people feeling comfortable taking the pain medication. And again, David, you're on top of it um, when you found this very interesting... This was actually, I cannot take credit for this, this was actually sent in to to the office by the mother of one of our former patients. 
uh, because in, in her line of work, she actually deals with, with this as well, and, and she found this article that she thought would be pretty interesting. Um, looking at back in the 80s, there was a, a couple of doctors, and, and they decided they wanted to find out if giving opioid medication to patients that were in a hospital, in a hospital. for short-term use, short-term use would be dangerous <laughs> right. and would cause addiction. And their study found that these patients in a hospital, in a medical situation that had short-term use of... Oh, for acute pain. For acute pain of opiates had a very low percentage of people b- going out and becoming um, having problems with addiction. And they wrote this letter that um, basically shared their findings. And in one paragraph, um, they, they pretty much said that opiates were not addictive. Discounted the parameters of it being in a hospital, discounted that it was short-term use, discounted that it was acute care and not chronic care, and they began the, the craze um, for crazy um, that that <laughs> op- the use of opiates for the treatment of pain was was not a, a something that doctors needed to be worried about that they would not be regulated about it because it's not going to cause addiction and that particular um, paragraph was cited at least six hundred and six hundred and sometimes in various form since that right. journal entries and right. research entries. As though this was the gospel, this this was not a placebo-controlled study. This was a limited number of people. This was a case report, five sentences, and it became the basis for the problem. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more how this problem grew. Please stay tuned. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Coming soon, only on AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. The Insurance Deal. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. 
More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Today, Michael Daly and David Donaldson and I from the Atlanta Healing Center are talking about the opioid crisis and how did we get here. So we ended the last segment with the jinx letter, which is this infamous one-paragraph, five-page letter that was written to the New England Journal of Medicine and published in the 80s that was quoted well over 500 times as being the basis for making decisions for using opioid medications. And by opioid, we mean natural opiates and we mean synthetic opiates. So opioid is that broad class. For using this for Anything from arthritis pain to back pain to muscle pain. Toothaches. Toothaches, whatever pain, that if you're using it for pain, the idea became, based on this study that wasn't even a study, and being written, though, and quoted over and over again. And what was so interesting is that when they're quoting it over and over again, they're exaggerating the results and they're putting different things into it that were never part of the little survey in the first right. place. So they're, they're going so far as to say that opiates are... Um, they're, they're leaving out that it was a limited critical care, um, acute care situation. They leave out that it was just being done in a hospital, and so they're concluding that it's fine for patients to have these as take-home medications for anything, arthritis, minor pains and injuries, anything that's causing a patient to have any sense of pain, they need to get an opiate to treat that. Um, Which is very different. If you're in a hospital and you have acute pain, say you've had an accident or an injury or a surgery, your pain is being monitored and managed by doctors and nurses. You aren't given a prescription and a a bottle to take home with you for you to decide when and if and how much pain medication you should take. Yet they were taking this very specific situation and generalizing it not only to a variety of pain conditions, but also to outpatient chronic treatment of pain. But very, very different. So when pain medic well when pain medications are prescribed, even today, real often what you'll see on the bottle is take um, three to four times daily as needed for pain or PRN for pain, meaning as needed. Uh-huh. And so once again, they're telling the patient to judge when to take this this really strong medication based on how they're feeling and based on their need. And, I mean, that's something that at the Atlanta Healing Center we've been working against since we started, that this is not something you take as you feel like you need it, but you take it by the clock as, doc- as the doctor, Dr. Blank, has prescribed it because... We need to separate that connection be- connection between your feelings, say, this is when I need to take a drug. Well, and, and something that people learn very early and very quickly that have the euphoria to opioid mm-hmm. is that if you go to any emergency care, mm-hmm. whether it's a doc in the box, 
a hospital emergency room, anywhere, you can say that your pain level is over a certain amount mm-hmm. and you're an automatic prescription. Right. So it's interesting. I remember working in the field at that time because, you know, I'm older than I should be. But um, <laughs> and, and at that time, patients would be in group talking about pain medications and and that they were told that this is not addictive and and the message that was was often um you know as as drug companies would come and talk to us about their medications the message they would say was if the person has pain issues and they take this the medication goes to treating the pain and it won't interact with the addiction receptors that it won't cause addiction if there is pain and so the talk with in groups back at that time would be um, the problem is taking it when you don't have actual pain that causes addiction, not the fact mm-hmm. that the opiates are causing the addiction. And this this article from the 1980s started this ball whole rolling. ball rolling with the information that your patients in addiction treatment, let, let's point out, were talking about this. There was... Um, the story continues with a very famous, bright, intelligent pain doctor from Beth Israel Hospital, Dr. Russell Portnoy. Now, I'm not throwing Dr. Portnoy under the bus um, because I think given his experience, his experience with his mother having chronic pain from arthritis, he saw her using hydrocodone, a pain medication for a number of years and not having any problems with it. Mm -hmm. And he began, he was a great teacher, still is a great leader, and he went through the process of beginning to educate the residents and fellows and medical students at um, the Boston area hospitals. He began to be a very public and uh, popular speaker. I've heard him speak before, and he really is. He's a very enthusiastic and a very uh, well-learned man, and he began this, his campaign that if you have real pain, then you're not going to be addicted. Many drug companies, including Purdue Pharma, which <laughs> which becomes one of our villains in in our story today, began to hire him as a training person. And rather than him speaking primarily to pain management doctors, he was speaking to primary care doctors. Many things happened in the 80s and 90s where a lot of specialty care was shifted back to primary care doctors. This happened in psychiatry, and we've talked about this before, Mm -hmm. where as we developed medications that were not lethal in overdose anymore that could be used to treat depression, and as the management of these medications became easier, then it now became the job of the primary care doctor to go ahead and treat anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. As these studies, uh, and I'm using air quotes again, and these um, prominent physicians began to speak out about if you have pain, then you can't be addicted, 
now more and more primary care doctors, and even still today, most of the pain medications that are written today are written by primary care doctors, are written by OBGYNs, written by um, dentists, and they are um, certainly far and away the most frequent prescribers. But they were given this education that said, these are not addictive substances. Purdue Pharma was about to run out of patent for one of their medications, and they found a new delivery system, and they generated a medication called OxyContin. Now, that's, <laughs> that's become a bad word uh, <laughs> around the Atlanta Healing Center, but OxyContin <laughs> was now touted as this is really going to be the answer to pain management. Because the problem with the short-acting pain medicines is that you're going in and out of pain all day long. If you take one pill and then in three to four hours your pain's back and now you've got to take another pill and wait an hour or so, you're going in and out of pain. It's very miserable. Well, and and if you are in pain and if you have had surgery and you 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 are educated that once we get you out of pain, you have to keep up with your medications so you don't go back into pain because it's very hard to get you out of it. Right. So they would rather have you on continuous. Mm-hmm. The long-acting pain medicines mm-hmm. became very popular, and OxyContin became the flagship. They sold millions and billions of dollars worth of this medication. And the, the way it was marketed, again, to primary care doctors in particular, was that this is a long-acting medication. It is time-released, so therefore people with addiction aren't going to like it. They aren't going to like it at all because it takes a long time and it lasts a long time. And they found a solution to that problem very quickly. Right. I mean, the patients. The pa- well, the, ad- the <laughs> young and inspiring addicts who wanted yes. to figure out how to be able to take this medication and still get the buzz that they were wanting. Um, and And... As we've talked about regularly with patients, the quicker you can get something into your system, the more your brain is going to like it. And so if you swallow it and it has to go through your stomach, that's going to take an awful long time. But if you crush the substance and you snort it, it gets there really, really, really quickly. And the patients not only didn't hate this drug, they loved this drug. And because there were so many people now prescribing it... And it was a, a big deal. It had been a lot of marketing had gone on around um, the safety of this drug and the new delivery system. This became a very highly prescribed medication. As there was an increase with all opioids during this period of time from the late 90s until about 2010. So this... Uh, Availability, other ma- other manufacturers, other pharmaceutical companies began to manufacture long-acting pain medicine, and this became the standard. There was a couple of other things that happened during this time that also, I think, added to this perfect storm of the opiate crisis we have now. One was that now we had direct-to-consumer cons- advertising. Mm-hmm. 
Now, I really find it very hard to watch the news. Well, for many reasons. But one of the reasons is that every other commercial is a medication. Yes. Used to couldn't do that. You It used to not be um, legal for you to directly... Um, inform and uh, market to consumers. And I think it's interesting when in you talking about this, if you do watch the news and you watch it from a certain time to a certain time, you can also figure out the demographic of what <laughs> right. of whoever is watching that show by the in, by the commercials that they're showing. Category of, of and it's it's interesting when you hear the business of pain medication it's being it's being billed on every end from the from the treatment the pain the pain itself and then now there's one out for for treating the constipation and opioid induced constipation so exactly. there is money coming from every direction exactly so when we come come back after our break we're going to talk about how this perfect storm developed please stay tuned the disease of addiction is a life altering challenge not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Coming soon, only on AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. The Insurance Deal. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Today, David Donaldson and Michael Daly and myself have been talking about the opioid crisis. How did this happen? 
We've traced a couple of important events. The first was the Jinx letter that unfortunately got um, published in the New England Journal of Medicine and taken way out of context far too many times. Uh, then we had the advent of other doctors beginning to teach and train primary care doctors in the ideas of this is uh, a safe chronic or for chronic pain, not the acute pain that was the original uh, study or the, the report that was done, but that in uh, acute or chronic pain, if it's real pain, these medications aren't addictive. Then we have the drug company developing a long-acting form of pain medication that, again, was marketed very heavily to primary care doctors with the idea, again, that this was not going to be attractive to folks with addiction. So even if they could get addicted, they weren't going to like this because it was long-acting. But there was a very quick workaround, and our patients learned really quickly how to make it short-acting and really powerfully acting. Then we had the direct-to-consumer advertising. So we had this situation where pharmaceutical companies were allowed to put in print um, marketing in magazines, newspapers, on television, on radio, directly to the patients. And we began to see the effects of this. Mm -hmm. I remember the first time a patient came in and asked for an antidepressant by name. They had already diagnosed themselves. They had already decided what side effects were going to be most tolerable for them and what antidepressant would be the best solution for them. I was and that was shocked. before Google. <laughs> and that was well before Google. So it was um, it was very interesting to see that particular thing happen. There was another step that came into play that David was part of what you um, you mentioned in the first segment, and that was different organizations the American Pain Society, the Joint Commission on Hospital Accreditation, many patient advocacy groups, as well as pain management groups, began to call for the idea of pain as the fifth vital sign. Now, most of us know about vital signs that everywhere you go, to, from your doctor to the emergency room to the hospital, where they take your blood pressure, your pulse, your heart rate, or excuse me, your, um, your temperature and your respiratory rate, those are the four vital signs that are supposed to be on your chart. They added the fifth vital sign, which you were talking about, David, which is what's your level of pain? And the recommendation was that if your pain level was up for or above, that the doctor should consider writing opioid pain medication. So they began to have the smiley faces and the 1 to 10 scale or the 1 to 5 scale, and it became part of the requirements. Well, and I, th <coughs> I think it went so far that... If you went, and, and patients knew this, if you went into the doctor's office and you had a pain scale of a five or better, 
if they didn't give you a, pa- a prescription, they could be in trouble. Right. They could be be um, in a malpractice situation if they were neglecting the need. And, and so anybody who's been on opiates for a while and they begin having some withdrawal symptoms, it's going to learn really quickly that when they ask me what my pain level is to stay six or seven. Right. Or nine. You or nine. To. Absolutely. Because there were a, fa- a couple of famous cases that were out in California in the late 90s where there were large malpractice suits that were won by the plaintiff because of poor <laughs> or inappropriate pain management. And this put the fear into prescribers, hospitals, then we've got the Joint Commission saying you have to ask this. The fifth vital sign has to be documented just like the other things. So now we have what you're beginning to see is the perfect storm. Doctors are getting pressure to write these meds. They're getting reassurance that they're okay. Pharmaceutical companies are paying a lot of money, a lot of money in those days Sadly, not today, (laughs) but in those days, doctors got trips and great dinners and gifts and all kinds of things if they would go and listen to education about XYZ medication. So this just created this atmosphere of educated patients... But and the thing that we were seeing on on the clinical side again was that a patient would be would have an injury or something and they'd be seeing a doctor and they'd get a prescription and then the month would go by and they'd get a prescription and get a prescription and inevitably they would start calling earlier for this prescription and so doctors would become frustrated with this patient and they would refer him to pain management. Once they got to pain to pain management, they would be put on this pain management contract that basically said, you'll take the medications exactly as prescribed. You will not call for a refill. If you call for a refill early, we'll consider you're noncompliant and you'll be discharged. And, and patients would find themselves um, in full-fledged addiction, and the doctors will have documentation to clear themselves from the situation so the patient would be left on the street. And at the same time, they would show up at, at psychiatric hospitals and emergency rooms in a state of withdrawal, and their insurance companies would say, that's not a fatal situation. You might suffer, you might itch for a little bit, but you'll be fine. So no, we're not going to admit you. Go away. And so everybody was hands-off for this person who's now gotten into a very desperate situation. And that's where the black market comes in. Exactly. And that's where the drug dealers come in, and that's where the patients that are able to present a good story and talk a good talk are able to present their case to a doctor, emergency room, um, other prescribers, and get prescriptions for which they really may not have needed or may not have needed all that they got, and they would sell those or um, trade them for other drugs they preferred. And now we have this black market, as you said, Michael, for medications that are becoming more and more expensive. Mm -hmm. So all of this is escalating. People are educated. They know about the meds. They're being asked constantly about their pain. Doctors are feeling pressure to write or not write. Uh, We've got this whole escalation in the prescribing and the availability of of these meds. And it's interesting because during that time period, 
cocaine was very, very popular right. as the drug on the street. And as as your storm is continuing to rise and things are continuing mm-hmm. to happen, um, the drug dealers who are always very well aware of trends right. and try to stay ahead of it, they decided that let's slow down with the cocaine and let's get some heroin out into the, the public and make it available and inexpensive. And that is exactly what has happened, is that now we find that our, our source of heroin has moved from being in the, in the Middle East, which was now the heroin's got to come across continents and countries and borders and oceans um, to get here. It was much more expensive, much less readily available. Now we have it coming in from South America and Mexico, and the drug dealers have learned, okay, uh, we used to make hot dogs. We're now going to make hamburgers because that's what people want, and they're able to provide a new drug. And then fast forward to the last few years and we see that fentanyl, which was very rare, and the reason that we used to, well, I mean, we still test for it, but the reason that we started was that we worked with a lot of professionals, impaired professionals. And so these folks, doctors, nurses, anesthesiology, um, uh, representatives would be um, using this drug that they had diverted from the emergency room or from the operating room. But now the um, the Mexican drug cartels, um, the Chinese have learned how to manufacture fentanyl very inexpensively. And this has now become very readily available. It's cheaper than heroin. You don't have to wait for a good crop and the poppies to bloom and the uh, flower petals to fall off and the sap to come out of the pod and then cook it down and make it and transport it. All of that, you can manufacture it relatively easily and cheaply. And now we've got the super drugs, if you will, that are extremely deadly, highly addictive, very rapidly addictive. And we've got these patients, we've got these people, we've got families being destroyed by this particular perfect storm that started from some very innocent and well-meaning. I, I don't think that anybody along this trail of events had the intent that let's kill hundreds of thousands of people um, through drugs overdoses. Uh, That was not necessarily their intent at all. And I'm speaking of legitimate... And and I think it was legitimately believed Mm -hmm. that this is not a fatal situation. You might, you know, nod off and you might have a lot of pain and misery, but it's not a life and death situation once upon a time. So in 2010... Um, the federal government began to evaluate and brought suit against Purdue Pharma. And in this suit, it was for misrepresenting the dangerousness, marketing problems. A number of issues were raised 
with um, the company. The company was found guilty, was charged a huge fine. Well, huge for my pocketbook, but relative to the amount of money that they made off this drug, probably a drop in the bucket. And they were put on the equivalence of probation. They were also required to change their formulation to make it a um, tamper-proof, tamper-resistant uh, pill so that the person's ability to be able to use it incorrectly would be greatly limited. So that was the first part of the, the change in the storm. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the other changes that have occurred. Thanks for listening. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Coming soon, only on AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. The Insurance Deal. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and this is America's Web Radio. David Donaldson and Michael Daly and myself have been talking about the opiate crisis. How did we get here? And we realize that this has been a number of unfortunate occurrences that have happened over about 25 years that have resulted in our current opioid um, epidemic. So right before the break, we talked about um, in 2010-2011, Purdue Pharma was required to change their formulation and pay a fine, and we began to see that there was um, this change in 
um, in the prescribing habits, and doctors were getting more and more education. On a federal level, REMS courses were required for doctors, and these are education courses specifically about proper prescribing. They were tailored both for specialists as well as for primary care, and doctors were beginning to be educated in the proper prescribing of these medications. Um, Another thing that was uh, very important on state levels, states began to look into pill mills, which were unfortunate situations where doctors were prescribing medication for cash on very sketchy kinds of diagnoses with little to no actual evaluation of the patients and and then they were pres- they were not only prescribing but they were filling the prescriptions mm-hmm. from their own pharmacies right and yeah. we're using air quotes again yes air quotes um, so this this became a a, a real problem. This was the source of, of some of these medications as other doctors got more educated and more alerted to the idea of I need to prescribe uh, in, a, in a better way. Most states also made changes to their Physician Practice Act that required things like like documentation and physical exams that they had to do drug testing, pill counts, Many states instituted the prescription drug monitoring programs, which require pharmacies to um, enter into a database prescriptions that are filled that are for controlled substances. This allowed doctors to have a better idea of where the pills, <laughs> the medications their patients were getting, where they were coming from, who was writing them, and how they were being paid for. So this was very, very helpful in terms of making sure that patients weren't um, doctor shopping, getting multiple prescriptions filled in um, multiple different pharmacies. We also saw a number of changes, again, federally, where they took hydrocodone, which was a medication that was the most prescribed pain medicine. It was a different schedule. It was a Schedule Three, which meant that you could write it out with multiple refills, that you didn't have to have the patient come in every month and get a written script they could also be called in by the telephone. And so this this medication was rescheduled by the feds to a Schedule II, which requires the written prescription. So all these things were beginning to happen as more and more people were dying. We also saw Dr. Portnoy, when we come back to him, in 2012, he um, made a series of statements, and actually there's a very interesting YouTube video where he talks about the mistakes he made and that given the information that he knows now, he would never have taught um, the prescribing um, techniques and ideas that he had before. I have to give him a lot of credit for mm-hmm. being willing um to own up to to this mistake and to to make amends, he he did a nice and job. And it was an honest mistake on exactly. his part. So, yeah. So he 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 took responsibility and became 
um, you know, uh, one of the champions for um, prescription, proper prescription uh, of opioid techniques and those kinds of things. So that has happened. All new medications, with the exception of one, I think, has been required. If it's a long-acting form, it's been required to be tamper-resistant, which has also helped um, decrease the, the patient's ability to use it inappropriately. The Joint Commission has removed pain as the fifth vital sign, so hospitals don't get dinged, doctors don't get dinged if they are not asking and, and prescribing the pain. Many of the hospitals are now uh, removing questions about was your pain adequately treated from their patient satisfaction surveys because often the doctors would feel a lot of pressure to have a good satisfaction survey and that often meant so give the patient what, what they, they want, want even if it's not what they need. So putting the prescribing back in the doctor's um, judgment and the doctor's hand, I think, makes a difference. And and it's also tied together. I mean, you know, with like you said, the advertising and then the internet and everything coming together. These these doctors were were basically being told what to do by the patients. Right. And then we have the the limitations on the pharmaceutical companies being able to advertise to doctors and provide huge payments and bonuses and trips and all all those kinds of things. So now if you if you accept a luncheon from a pharmaceutical company uh, as a physician, that gets listed on a national registry. How much that lunch cost? and how often you have those lunches or dinners or trips or subsidies for um, conferences. So there's a lot more transparency in terms of the, the marketing techniques and the way in which everyone has to be much more responsible about their actions and more thoughtful. Unfortunately, we still have now the unintended consequences that as we push down the the whack-a-mole of prescription um, drug misuse, we're now seeing the unintended consequences, unfortunately, of the illicit drug use and but, And deaths. I think that that really has to speak to the fact that there is not legitimate sources of real pills out there anymore. Right. <clears throat> so if somebody, if you get this message that this guy has a bunch of Percocets available... You have, not, you have to, part of you recognize that this is, you're taking a very dangerous step because yes. they're not coming through legitimate sources that like they once were. Exactly. <clears throat> well, and, and an article I read, I don't know, a few months ago about the Chinese um, fentanyl was that they keep changing the molecular makeup. Right. Just by altering something so that it's not, it's not easily detectable in, in tests. 
Yes, they think that there are now at least seven analogs of the original drug fentanyl. So these are slight variations, just like they do with bath salts and with um, synthetic marijuana and other kinds of things. These chemists, these pharmacologists are very smart, and they change one molecule, one bond, and make it so that it's still psychoactive but now not detectable by the drug testing or not technically illegal because it's not that drug. Again, another air quotes. Um, So there's, there's a lot of problems. The, the biggest problem I think that we have, honestly, with this country, and I've mentioned this book before, but it's had a powerful impact on me, and that's Tom Wainwright's book, Narconomics, How to Run a Mexican Drug Cartel. And one of the difficulties that we've had in this country since the time of prohibition is that we continue to focus on the supply. If we decrease the supply, if we make alcohol unavailable, if we decrease the supply of the prescription drugs, if we decrease the supply of cocaine or marijuana, that somehow we are going to solve the problem. That only makes somebody else along the line a whole lot richer. What we need to do is really be advocating for the early identification and the early treatment of this chronic disease of addiction. That is how we are going to win this battle. That is our our message. That is our goal. That is our wish for all of you. Every chance you get to be an advocate, please do so. We need more treatment. We need more money to be available for folks who cannot afford treatment. We will see you next week on Detailing Addiction. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.